Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we meet a Spanish physicist who's setting up a summer school in Granada that will help launch careers in big science. But first, I'm in conversation with a physicist who works in the field of nuclear forensics, as well as talking about his work on the detection of illegal radioactive material, we chat about a nuclear waste-powered battery that he's developing, and also about careers in the nuclear industry. I'm joined down the line from the University of Bristol by the physicist Tom Scott. Tom's a professor of materials at the university's Interface Analysis Center, and he has a keen interest in nuclear forensics. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. It's great to be here. So, Tom, can you describe the field of nuclear forensics? What what exactly are you interested in? Well, it's, firstly, it's a very uh, new field, if you like. Um, it's, it's quite rare that we might have a field of science and research that's relatively new. But nuclear forensics is relatively new in that it's aimed at developing our science and underpinning understanding of uh, nuclear materials which, which might turn up through, uh, through illicit activities, if we like. So would, if, for example, some nuclear material was, was um, intercepted at a border crossing, then there would be a, a nuclear forensic uh, process, a study, if you like, to try and determine whose that material was, where did it come from, when was it made, and to try and unpick all of the sort of features about that material to understand its provenance. Um, and in doing so, you trace it back to where it came from. And, and in understanding its sort of history, you can understand where it was uh, illegally taken and, and misappropriated. And so, Tom, we were chatting before the, the interview, and um, you, you said that you, you, you started out as a physicist. You're now um, a professor of materials. How, how did you find yourself working in nuclear forensics? Well, it's, uh, it's an interesting area. It's, it's very, very cross-disciplinary. So uh, just a, like conventional forensics, which, which could be looking at everything from uh, gunshot powder residue to... Uh, genetics of, of of someone's hair that's sampled from a crime scene. Nuclear forensics similarly requires uh, lots of different disciplines to work together. So that could be, uh, for example, physicists who are specialists in detection of, of different types of particle released by radioactive decay. Um, so people that develop detector materials, people that um, are specialists in materials analysis to understand, for example, the aging of materials, um, you might have, for example, at Bristol, we have specialists in isotope mass spectrometry who are actually in the Earth Sciences and Geography Department, but they're world-leading experts in mass spectrometry. And they, for example, would use dating techniques to understand uh, how, for example, a, an intercepted piece of uranium oxide to understand when it was actually made. So you can span across the disciplines of science and engineering and, and draw lots of those different disciplines into nuclear forensics. And, and that makes it a very interesting subject area because all of these different disciplines bring different views and, and ways of approaching uh, problems. And, and by mixing disciplines, it's actually not only very rewarding, but it's a very powerful thing to do. So, Tom, you've worked on something called a diamond battery, which uses nuclear waste as a source of energy. 
How do these batteries work and where could they be deployed? So uh, these batteries are actually voltaics. Um, and so you could think of them as being cousins of the solar panel, <laughs> if you like. Uh, obviously, solar panels often made out of silicon. Um, but if, if you were to make what we call a radiovoltaic out of silicon, then, then the radioactive uh, particles that, that would be generating the energy would actually destroy the bonds in the silicon and they would render the device inoperable. It would break the device. So, so we make devices out of diamond because diamond, uh, you know, it's carbon, uh, carbon material. The bonds between our carbon atoms are incredibly strong and therefore it's, it's pretty in, uh, impervious to radiation damage. So we can make uh, diode type devices just like you can make in silicon, but we make them out of diamond and we either put the radioactivity inside, which is a beta emitting uh, isotope of carbon, typically, or tritium, which is a radioactive hydrogen. And essentially, the, the beta particle, which is a high energy electron within the structure of the diamond, you can imagine it's a little bit like strumming the strings on a guitar in that the, the energy that's put into strumming then creates the hum, the, the beautiful tune that you can get on the guitar. But essentially, you're turning a high-energy electron into a cascade of low-energy electrons, which then flow as a trickle of current out of the device. And obviously, the device, because it's an atomic battery device, um, will have a lifetime for supplying current that is you know, proportional to the half-life of the isotopes which are inside. So it's, an, it's an, a neat technology. It won't ever power a, a train or an aeroplane, but it will power tiny little devices that we might use throughout industry and through healthcare and, and maybe in our own homes where you've got devices that you kind of want to fit and then forget about. You never need to replace the batteries. Um, and I think we'll see this technology become a very important enabler for the Internet of Things as we go forwards. It's also a really nice way of thinking about doing nuclear differently. And I'm, I'm very passionate about the fact that um, nuclear energy technology, when we look at these big reactors uh, around the UK, we're not getting the best value for the atomic energy. We're just producing electricity. And we're doing that relatively inefficiently. You know, it's 30% efficient to, start to turn the heat from fission into steam. Uh, to drive a turbine, to turn turn that uh, kinetic energy into electrical energy. So I like to think about the proposition of doing, from a physics perspective, making use of the atomic energy more efficiently, thinking how we can use it differently. And that also goes to the extent that really, if we want the public to truly accept nuclear energy, not only does it have to be efficient and safe, it needs to be sustainable. So recycling nuclear waste materials to be able to put some of that waste material back into use that's societally useful, I think is a very noble thing to try and do. And, and from a physics perspective, it's incredibly interesting because we're trying to make these devices and we're trying to improve the efficiency. We get to do isotopic cookery with the structure and, and composition of these devices. And um, for example, one way that we can make them is we can make uh, diamond devices which are non-radioactive and then we can put them into a core of a nuclear reactor to charge them up effectively um, by by causing transmutation of, of isotopes we put inside into the beta emitting isotopes that we want for the power. Wow, that's interesting. C crazy idea. And I'm sure I'm sure you'll explain why it's a crazy idea. But one thing that could benefit 
from from a diamond battery, it sounds like, is a, is a smoke detector. But of course, the smoke detector already has a, a tiny little bit of radioactive material in it. So, so could you actually make a, a, a sort of self-powered smoke detector that ha- I think it's americium is the uh, is the element that's used. So could you put a, a little bit of your diamond next to the americium source and on one side you create electricity and on, on the other side you do your smoke detection. And so uh, the whole gizmo is run by the radioactive americium or is, is that just a, a, a silly thing? Not a, not a silly thing at all. I mean, americium is a beta emitter, um, and, and effectively, how how the smoke detector works is you have your beta emitter, um, you have a, a collector, and and you have a small air gap in between. And if there's sufficient smoke in the room, then the smoke will attenuate the amount of beta particles leaping across that gap from the americium to the detector, um, and it's that it's the drop in measured activity which would trigger the alarm. In fact. So um, yes, you you could indeed have a beta voltaic inside a fire alarm. So we do think that they will use be used for safety functions or supporting safety functions. Because obviously, if you've got a sensor which is performing a critical safety function, so whether it's looking for a fire, for example, if that sensor runs out of chemical battery, how do you know that it stopped working? Right. So isn't it intrinsically safer to have a battery that doesn't run out? <laughs> um, and, and therefore, your, your worry about losing power, you know, ceases to exist. Then you worry about whether any of the electronic components might, you know, might um, break or, or degrade over a long period of time. And your, your worries about operation then shift onto other components within the system. But certainly, uh, safety functions. We've we've um, we've been having discussions with with medics about using them for hearing aids, for pacemakers, um, for putting them in things like cube satellites, for example. So there, there's lots of potential applications. I'm really excited about some work that we've just done to show that we can use one of these devices to power an artificial neuron. And that takes you into really interesting places that you might have diamond batteries, for example, who are helping people who need deep brain stimulation to prevent fitting. Uh, You might have it so that in in the future, you might have uh, sort of augmented humans where you've got chips inside your brains. Those brains might might be benefiting from diamond batteries to supply power to those chips. Um, But also things like um, navigating in the deep sea could we establish a sensor node or network on the sea floor, which is like a mesh network, which could provide us with this sort of deep sea equivalent of GPS, for example. And, and to do something like that, you would have to have power supplies which last for, you know, hundreds of years. And, and, and so these could be used for, for personal applications. I mean, how, how far do, do beta particles travel through materials, is it, it, it would it be safe to say that they wouldn't escape the the device and uh, and go into your body? They, they absolutely wouldn't escape. So f- first of all, it's diamond. So diamond's very hard. It's 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 very dense. Um, the the mean free path of a beta particle in diamond is two hundred nanometers. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, so that's pretty so safe then. We're talking very you know very small fractions of a millimeter that it would go you know tiny fractions of a millimeter so it, it wouldn't leave the diamond uh, e- equally if you if you smashed up that diamond 
the beta particles wouldn't, still wouldn't be getting out because it doesn't go far enough. The, the only way you could get the activity out is you would have to put the, the diamond batteries into a furnace at about 1,000 degrees and burn. Right. Yeah. And there's no, there's no secondary radiation. You know, for example, X-rays, if they were produced, could, could easily get out. Um, would those be a worry? Yeah, there's no, there's no secondary radiation that you can measure on the outside. That's because the beta particles themselves are not particularly high energy. So we're, okay. we're dealing with, with tritium, which is very soft beta, and carbon-14, which is also a soft beta. Um, so there's just not enough energy in the system to generate a lot of bremsstrahl along. Okay, right. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that, that sounds amazing. So, so beyond um, these diamond batteries, what, what other research projects do you have ongoing at the moment? So we have a, a lot of uh, research that's going on both um, with the UK AEA and also the Atomic Weapons Establishment. Um, uh, a lot of that is in, in the field of nuclear forensics and nuclear threat reduction. Uh, and this is to do with um, developing next generation uh, detection technologies in terms of uh, scintillation materials for radiation detection and, and very high energy particles. Uh, and also developing AI and machine learning techniques, which can sit behind a sensor network and can interrogate incredibly dense streams of data um, to determine whether something anomalous is developing or not. So if you, if you then sort of think about, well, how could that be useful? Well, you could imagine that in an industrial setting, but equally you could imagine that in, a, in terms of providing sensor networks at our ports and airports so that we can make sure or try to make sure that, that nobody would illegally bring in radioactive materials that could, could then be, you know, something nasty could be done with them in a city somewhere in terms of blowing up a chemical bomb that has some radioactive material in it. We don't want that to happen. And so putting in place the capability that we can actually uh, protect ourselves through, through sensing threats coming early is very, very important. And that's, that's part of the sort of, and links with the nuclear forensics activity as well. And, and for myself and my team, it's, it's not only academically really exciting in terms of developing new technologies, new materials. Um, so, for example, we're working on a material called GLOW, uh, which, funnily enough, is a scintillator, so it does glow. But it's, it's gadolinium lutetium oxide, and it's doped with uh, elements like praseodymium. So, so some, of, some of the elements on the periodic table that your average Joe has never even heard about, in fact. Um, but, but they would represent the next generation in terms of, of having a much improved density, um, quantum efficiency for detection, um, and therefore they increase our capability um, in that whole detection space. And like I said before, the, the opportunity to be able to work cross-disciplinary in this space around nuclear threat, threat reduction activities, to work with government, to work with industry, it's, it's really very rewarding, but it's a, it's a growing area. So one thing that we're very keen on doing is trying to get as many students and recent graduates involved as possible because we need those bright young minds to come in and, and to get involved, to shape them, to educate them, and, and essentially to let them be the sort of next generation of, of professors, professors like me eventually who are not only doing research because it's interesting, but also doing the research because nationally it's incredibly important. And so, Tom, if I was a, a physics student, maybe maybe I'm in my last year of my undergraduate degree, why why should I consider pursuing a career 
in, in, in the nuclear industry and, and specifically in, in nuclear forensics? Can you, can you give, give me an elevator pitch? Absolutely. Well, I, I think especially for the current generation of graduates um, who have had to experience COVID, they've, they're very acutely aware of climate change issues and the fact that the world needs to decarbonize. It, it's very clear that one of the must-have technologies for almost all countries is nuclear technology. That nuclear energy will provide the baseline source of electricity for most countries around the, around the globe, in fact. Um, and of course, that's very important. It needs to happen. And we need bright young graduates to push nuclear as part of the energy portfolio and agenda. And we need those bright young minds to be designing future nuclear reactors, building new fleets of reactors. But, but from a nuclear forensics perspective, it means actually with, with more reactors, we're going to have more nuclear materials traveling around. There's more opportunity for materials to go missing. And therefore, it's more important that we grow our capability around nuclear forensics so that when materials do go missing, we can trace where they've gone very quickly. And, and Tom, earlier on, you, you mentioned that nuclear forensics is a fairly um, new uh, field. Are there very clear career paths for people um, who are interested in, in going into it? Absolutely, there are. There is uh, there are sort of uh, two main career paths that you that you can um, point towards. First, one is is the academic career path. So, uh, for those who are interested to come and work with people like myself and equivalent academics at universities like Imperial College, Cambridge, Manchester, um, it's it's actually quite a big community. Um, and the other pathway is to go into the to what I would call the sort of governmental industrial pathway, but it's to go and work for the UK government uh, or, or governments or organisations that, that the UK is friendly with. So organisations like the IAEA, for example, and, and to work within their laboratories um, to provide a sort of the, the go-to capability in case of any incident. Um, so it's for the universities to increase the level of the technology and capability, and then it's for governments to then exercise those capabilities as and when are needed. So it, it very much is a conjoined activity. And, and just because you might be working in the university, you would still be having a lot of contact across with those governmental organizations and vice versa. But those those would be the two career sort of pathways. And of course, then there's industry as well, which links to working with government, which would be the types of organizations which develop new instruments to interrogate materials. So that could be companies like Oxford Instruments or, or Zeiss or, you know, or Thermo Fisher, for example. So some really big uh, instrument manufacturers who, you know, will be developing tools and technologies that the nuclear forensics community will be using on a regular basis. So, Tom, you mentioned uh, opportunities with the UK government. Um, can you be more specific? What, what sort of agencies would a, a nuclear forensics person be working for? Well, the, the agency which takes the national lead on this is an agency that I'm working closely with. I'm, in fact, a William Penny fellow with them. And this is the Atomic Weapons Establishment. So the AWE, typically known for, for being the custodian of, of the UK's nuclear deterrent, but actually one of the very, very important functions that it, it performs is taking a national lead on nuclear threat reduction activities. And it's the AWE that, that would be my first port of call if I was a new, newly sort of minted physics graduate because it, it offers a heck of a career to go there. It's a very exciting place to work. 
Well, that's great, Tom. It sounds like a, a fascinating field to get into. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and talking about it. Hey, Mitch, it's my pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. Work is underway in southern Spain on an accelerator-based neutron source that will be at the heart of the International Fusion Materials Irradiation Facility. Located in Granada, the facility will be the largest piece of scientific infrastructure in Spain, and it will focus on boosting our understanding of how materials are affected by the high flux of neutrons found inside fusion reactors. The facility will need scientists and engineers, and to encourage students to pursue careers in big science, the University of Granada physicist Blanca Biel Ruiz is organizing a summer school that will provide insights into the research done at such facilities. Here she is in conversation with Physics World's James Dacey. I'm an associate professor at the University of, of Granada in Spain, and my background is uh, uh, actually quantum simulations of uh, materials at the atomic scale. So I like playing with atoms. So in my simulations, I uh, have a material, and I want to understand well, how its properties are going to be changed if I modify it at the atomic level. So I can uh, change the chemical species, or I can create defects, like removing atoms, things like that. Uh, so that's been my... Uh, yeah practically all my um, professional career so far. So you're part of a new initiative to launch a school dedicated to big science. Tell me about how that came about and what are the aims of that? Yes, so the school, which is called Excited School, is going to be devoted on big science technologies. And, well, it was triggered because, uh, as you may know, the uh, Donis facility is going to be built in Granada probably in the uh, very uh, next few years. And we thought this was the perfect combination to combine the skills of the University of Granada, which is a very strong university in Spain in terms of research, with the uh, hands-on expertise of the people working directly at this accelerator. So these people are going to be are actually building it uh, right now, designing it and, and involving in all the parts of, the, of this uh, facility, but also have been working prior to this in other facilities. So they have uh, really all the knowledge uh, that could be very useful to transfer to the students of the school. So, so what types of things specifically will you be teaching students? So what, what, what are the skills that you think are, are necessary but maybe are not there at the moment in these people? So our idea for this particular school is to try to bring the best people uh, for every course. So um, the, the school will have an annual periodicity. So each year we will cover two different courses. Uh, and our idea is to change the topic of the course, depending on the uh, uh, feedback we get from industry or the or what we feel is more important to teach uh, to our students right now. So we we will bring here the best of the people, the, the best experts in the in the world in that, at that particular moment, so that if you're interested in and learning about. For instance, materials, which is going to be one of the topics of the uh, first edition of the school, and the, the type of materials you need for uh, nuclear uh, facilities, for fusion in particular. So you need to come and, and, and visit us and attend that particular course. Okay, and, and who is it aimed at? Is it undergraduates or people who have graduated? It really, it's really open to everyone. Uh, it could be useful for uh, master's students or PhD students wanting to uh, have a more practical experience uh, 
others to be more in touch with the reality of big science facilities. But uh, we are totally open and we are, have already um, received much interest from industry because for many industries it's going to be very important to learn a particular skill or, or to learn about a particular topic. So, uh, yeah, we expect that we will have uh, uh, lots of people coming from industry as well. Okay, and, and in terms of people financing it is, is there any support from industry i mean the big question how is that that's a very interesting <laughs> question so for this uh, uh first year um the the course is going to be or the school is going to be funded mostly by the state mcdonald's spain consortium which is the the uh, partially funded by the university of granada uh in the following years we will have to be uh, probably uh self-funded so we would fund it as through uh, fees of the students, uh, but we would very much have uh, like to have sponsors, so that uh, yeah they can also contribute to to uh, to the school. Okay, yeah. So the first year is about getting it off the ground and just getting it started. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So we don't anticipate having any trouble in the future for for funding. Okay, and in um, the talk earlier where you were presenting this, you, you showed some pictures of the accommodation where people stay. It was a really impressive old building and, <laughs> and it sounds like there's lots of cultural and social elements yes. to the school as well. So tell me about those. Yeah, so for us, I think we absolutely have to take advantage of uh, the location of the school. So Granada, is, uh, it's been um, uh, a multicultural city since centuries ago. Actually, uh, the university now comes from the very, very old universities in times of the Moorish and, and the Jews. And so we have a very... Uh, a big tradition, a very long-standing tradition of culture and on, on, on education. And, and we can also benefit from the historical, this historical um, background because also we have, yeah, as you said, amazing buildings that belong to the university. So it's really nice that the university is offering us to be able to use these buildings for the lecturers to uh, host the students and the, and the speakers. So yeah, I think we are very uh, fortunate to be able to do that. And there'll be a chance to visit the famous Alhambra and the other Moorish architecture. Absolutely. So, of course, we couldn't uh, have our students without uh, leaving Granada, without getting to know the Alhambra. So, actually, what we would like to do is not a usual visit to the Alhambra, but a night visit, which is something that not many people uh, know about. So, I think that would be something different for them. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so finally, so how can people find out more? And when is exactly the first edition of the school? You said is it next year? Yes. The first edition is going to be from the 23rd uh, to the 28th of April in 2023. We are launching uh, our uh, website. You can find all the information there. The website is www.excited/school.org, and the way to spell excited is X. C-I-T-E-C-H. Perfect. Okay, well, um, yeah, best of luck with starting it and launching the new school and if it all goes well. Thank you very much. We're really looking forward to having this first edition of the school. Thank you. Thank you. James recorded that interview at the recent Big Science Business Forum, which was held in Granada. The meeting brought together leaders from industry and academia to discuss the technological needs of big science facilities, such as CERN and the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility, and how these needs can be met by industry. You can read more about this year's form on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, What Do the Sagrada Familia and Big Science Have in Common? 
Elsewhere on the website is a profile of Reiner Weiss, who shared the 2017 Nobel Prize for Physics for his contributions to the LIGO Gravitational Wave Observatories, which made a major breakthrough in 2015 by making the first-ever detection of gravitational waves from the merger of two black holes. The profile is called Reiner Weiss, 50 Years of LIGO and Gravitational Waves, and it's by Sidney Perkovitz. It recounts Weiss's early life as a refugee from Nazi Germany, his formative years in New York City, and his long career at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he realized in 1971 that it should be possible to use an interferometer to measure the extraordinarily small motion of a test mass caused by a gravitational wave passing through Earth an epiphany that led to the construction of LIGO decades later and ultimately a Nobel Prize. Elsewhere on the website, columnist James McKenzie sings the praises of the new iPhone 14, which can make satellite calls without the need for the big antennas found on satellite phones. In his column, Heavens Above, Why I'm in Love with Apple's iPhone 14, Mackenzie looks at the technology that makes this possible. Physics World's Margaret Harris has both a heat pump and solar panels at her house in the UK. And in her latest feature article, she looks at how these technologies can help reduce the carbon footprints and energy bills associated with the heating and lighting of commercial and residential buildings. The article is called Home Green Home, Scientific Solutions for Cutting Carbon and Maybe Saving Money. And a highlight of the article for me is the description of how the medieval church of Bath Abbey uses both solar and geothermal energy to heat and light its interior. And Margaret is back in next week's podcast, interviewing the co-founder of a Finnish company that makes sand batteries. These store excess renewable energy for later use. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Tom Scott, Blanca Biel Ruiz, and James Dacey for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at the uncertainty surrounding the UK's status in the Horizon Europe Research Funding Scheme and how this uncertainty is affecting physicists working in the UK. You can find all the stories episodes on the Physics World website and also at your favourite podcast provider. Physics World